0: Welcome to So You Want to Be a Copywriter, brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses. Your host is Bernadette Schwert, who you'll find at copyschool.com, and you can find out more about all our copywriting courses at copywritingcourses.com.au. Now over to Bernadette.
1: Would you like to sell your copywriting business for a million dollars? Or even... $10 million? It's possible. And Kobe Simmet is going to show us how. Kobe is one of Australia's most successful business improvement specialists. He recently achieved a $20 million valuation and then a successful sale of his own business, and now helps others unlock the full potential of their business. He wrote a book called How to Build a Business Others Want to Buy. And full disclosure, I was his ghostwriter, so I got to spend a lot of time hearing how Kobe did it and how others can too. I think you're going to love what Kobe has to say. Hello, I'm Bernadette Schwert. I'm the founder of the Australian School of Copywriting and the head copywriting tutor at the Australian Writer Centre. If you'd like to build a copywriting business and sell it, you should enrol in one of our courses to find out how to get started. You can't sell a business if you don't have a client, so let us show you how by enrolling in one of our short courses, which is called How to Build a Successful Copywriting Business. Sula Muhammad did, and this is what she said. I've never been in small business before, so I had no idea how to build my copywriting business. The course covered little things like setting up my ABN, naming my business, and big things like getting my website up. I can now move forward because I know what to do. Thank you, Bernadette. Well, thank you, Sula, for sharing your experience. Get the confidence and skills you need to set up your business, find clients, and build that all-important recurring revenue. Find out more at writercenter.com.au forward slash business or copyschool.com. And never forget, a short course can make a big impact. And if you like our podcasts, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Let's get started. Kobe Sumat, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. It's great to be here. Now, Kobe, since we spoke, a lot's happened, hasn't it? You've written a yeah. book. Yes, yes. Tell us all about that. Well, we have, haven't we? Together, that's I guess, we have. The we truth. have.
2: Yes, yes. So, um, yes, your your amazing ghostwriting skills have been deployed, and. Um, I'm I'm very grateful for that. So that's kind of, you know, the first flag for, um, you know, anyone listening is that, you know, that is a huge opportunity out there. Um, and Bernadette and I have, have worked together on this great project. And so, yes, we've written this book, How to Build a Business Others Want to Buy, and that's amazing.
1: It was a joy to work with you, Kobe, because I think from the day we met, we I met in your office and we looked at what is this book about? What is it going to be called? And to me, it was so clear that what you do is you help people Build a business so they can sell it. And I don't think a lot of people think like that when they get into business. You know, we talked about the passion people, the technicians, and they start off with, as copywriters do, which is a skill and they really love doing it. And then after 10 years, they get a bit tired and think, you know what, I wouldn't mind selling this, but they haven't actually set it up properly. So, what I'd love to talk to you today about is how could copywriters in particular, but any business owner, think differently at the very beginning so that if they do want to sell, they've got the value built in. So what kind of tips would you recommend from the get-go if people are starting their business now? How should they be thinking?
2: Yeah, look, I, I, I think it definitely starts with if you, um, you know, think about a business. Um, you know, the question is are you self-employed, you know, so you're in self-employed, if you like, versus a business owner or operator. And we talk in the book about you know the, the you know the technician versus owner kind of you know philosophy. So it's really about um, you know setting it up from the get go, you know having you as an owner. And you might definitely for a long period of time sit on one of the seats in the team and be on the team if you like. But eventually, you know you want to become an owner. And then if you can become an owner or see that you're getting some return from investment, uh, then you know, if, if you start to see return from investment, then you're going to start to see value because it's an investment that's up throwing off dividends, for example, uh, and that's going to have a value to someone. And I think that too many people kind of just more freelance work for people, if you like. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a different way of employing a casual person. Uh, you know, casual employee, and you're just kind of got to, you do invoices and you do a bit of an ABM, but at the end of the day, you're still kind of, realistically, you're a casual employee. So we want to get you out of that mindset and into the mindset that every single business that's out there, um, and I will put a a framework and I'll say, become a proprietary limited. You know, it's, yes, you can be a sole trader and yes, you can be a partnership, but there's kind of three, you know, for, for the people we're talking to, there's kind of three corporate structures. There's, you know, sole trader, uh, where you use your own personal bank account and you do the sole trader thing. There's, there's a partnership and then there's proprietary limited. So from the get go, become a proprietary limited. Let's cut to the chase and, and start building your business because that proprietary limited is a company. Uh, it's, it's, it's obviously, you know, limited liability on the proprietor because the company is like a, you know, it's like your, it's like your imaginary friend, Milko, if you like. um And, and that can behave as its own entity and its own individual, and and protect you to to some extent, but it's something that then you can pass off and sell to somebody else if they see value in it down the track.
1: And in terms of copywriting, do you see that as a sellable concept? You know, what what's your thinking around um, the the attractiveness of a copywriting business? How can people make their business more valuable?
2: Absolutely. Look, I'll, I'll give you one case study. So if you think about Um, you know, all the different applications of copywriting. So let's just talk about uh, websites and social media uh, right now. Um, And so, yes, there's, you know, there's copy obviously in books, there's copy in, you know, um, brochures and publications, um, but the written word is still very valuable. And in fact, I think probably more valuable now than it's ever been in the sense that it's so critical to things like search engines um, because the search engines still can't listen uh, to... Uh, video and audio, they convert that to text. So it's an auto text and then that text goes into SEO, for example. So even YouTube as a search engine still looks at titles, subject titles of, of videos. So if you build up a client base of people where you are helping them constantly refresh the copy on their websites in perpetuity, uh, helping them write captions for social media posts, helping them do you know a brochure or some kind of guidance, to their clients every year, helping write scripts on a regular basis, um, helping write speeches. Those are all recurring activities that happen again and again and again. Uh, even if you're somebody who's helping journalists write articles um, you know that, that need to be done on a regular basis and you have a batch of clients that you do repeat work for, then that's absolutely something that you can train people to help you with it. And I hear the, the shit testing already. Like It's like, ah, you can't train anybody. I can't find good people. We'll talk about that. But if you, can, if you can start to get yourself out of being the technician, doing the work and, and empowering other people to come and join your team, then absolutely that becomes something that it becomes an operation that, that does work for people and brings in money and, and you own it and you don't necessarily do all the writing. And if you, if you can, you know, start with the end in mind that I'd like to be in a position where I have this beautiful business that, you know, uses the craft of the beautiful craft of the written word to um, send messages, you know, to different people in different languages, then absolutely I think that's something that you should be exploring and, and hopefully I can show you what the end looks like.
1: Lovely. So in terms of there's so many ideas I want to talk to you about, COVID it's so interesting. The, It's the mindset too at the very beginning you talked about the owner versus technician, but in the book we talked a lot about what does an owner do differently that the technician doesn't do? And one of the things we talked about was identifying important versus urgent and often you know, the technician spends a lot of time in that zone of just doing the immediate, right, whereas what you've said is, as an owner, you need to be thinking about important. So what are those important activities in that quadrant two, if you look at that matrix um, of important versus urgent? What should copywriters today be thinking about if they want to move more into the owner zone?
2: Yeah, look, I I think it's the kind of, um, you know, Someone said to me a long time ago in my career, you know, the, the, the doing grunt work versus strategy work. And so when you kind of kick off your career, 85 to 90% of your time is grunt work and then maybe 10% is strategy work or, or thinking work or deep work. And then as you kind of move up the, the ladder, if you like, so, uh, as we would say, then you get to a point where 10% is grunt work and 90% is deep work or, 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 or strategy work. So what does that look like? If you're somebody who's you know by yourself, you're, you're a one-person show at this point in time, I would be saying there's seven days in the week, um, and you, you're self-employed anyway, so you do work seven days a week despite what you think you might otherwise do. Your brain's always switched on. So I would get myself a notebook. Um, I call it the book of 50. I would have a separate page for each of the next seven titles. I would have... I would open up the book and I would have page one would be marketing, which is where am I going to go and find people that I seek to serve? Um, So it would be page one would be marketing. Page two would be sales. Page three would be operations in terms of process, of how the process that we repeat to do the work that we do. Um, So that's three, uh, marketing, sales, operations. Page four would be finance. That's all your bookkeeping kind of stuff. You know, getting the API talking to Zero so that you get your bank feeds, so it's easy to do your bank reconciliation and your BAS, um, and do your invoicing, and you know when you've been paid because Zero tells you, um, because it looks at your bank account all the time. Uh, Then I would be looking at kind of a recruitment onboarding kind of strategy, and then you got you know you got a couple spare there for others, something else that might be unique about your business, and so. Um, you know it might be you know you might be a product based business or you might be a kind of a service based business, and you might need to do something that else that's special. But for everybody else, it's spending a day a week building the things that are important, like updating your website, doing your social media posts, and it's an hour. So if it's Monday and it's marketing, doing an hour of the important things that keep your pipeline flowing, on marketing on a monday and then on tuesday is sales and so writing yourself a kind of to-do list of the things you need to do for sales oh, i need to do update my my quote template or i need to kind of read a book on sales or i need to learn how to be better at closing deals or quoting deals or or you know learning to script better or something like that so that you can be more efficient when you get to the doing selling kind of stuff you know and then we talk about operations like what processes could i improve what could i build that makes me more efficient Um, You know, and then the finance thing, what do I need to do? You know, I need to get my zero set up properly and I need to kind of relabel the categories of the lines of my profit and loss statement. And so having those pages, those pages become the to-do list of the things for working on the business, not in the business. And if you can chip away every Monday for an hour on working on marketing, and if every Tuesday you can chip away for an hour and work on sales, and every Wednesday you could. you make your business a little bit more efficient by building something like a spreadsheet or a calculator or something that you need to do your work and sharpening your saw, if you like. You know, in the famous saying about, you know, the two the two lumberjacks that were in the forest. And one lumberjack like sweated it out all day cutting down trees, and another lumberjack kept stopping every hour. And then one lumberjack's looking across the other lumberjack, he says, he says, um, you know, you keep stopping every hour. And he says, oh, you know, I'm 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 doing things. And they get to the end of the day, and the guy that kept stopping every hour has cut down more trees. The guy that's, you know, the other lumberjack who's been sweating it all out, he walks across, he says, how come you cut down more trees today and you keep stopping every day? He says, well, I'm sharpening my saw. So, you know, so if you can chip away and just do a couple of little things on sales, you know, marketing on Monday and sales on Tuesday and efficiency on Wednesday and finance on Thursday and maybe HR and onboarding on Friday, then you've worked on your business for one hour every day and and the rest of the hours in the day, we're not spent, you know, billing your clients or reacting to your email inbox. And so, you know, it's it's Rome wasn't built in a day. And and it's and it's kind of someone says, someone sent me a message. They're like, oh, the book's amazing. This is great. I'm kind of getting back to my, you know, getting back to my focus and my strategy. I'm gonna spend the next two weeks working on my business. The book is really motivating, it's been inspired. And I'm like, dude, cool your jets. Keep doing what you're doing. I would prefer to see you work on your business for one hour every day for the next year than the next two weeks solid. And because because everybody will be screaming at you because you've been off the radar, off the grid, if you like, for the next two weeks and your customer's gonna scream at you and you won't be able to get that momentum. So you're far better off kind of chipping away at it. But that's the
1: that's kind of how you make it happen. Excellent. That's that's great. And you also talked about the importance of morning rituals you know, the first time you walk into your office, the the temptation is to get distracted. What are your techniques for starting the day well?
2: Uh, Rule number one, you're not allowed to check your email until 11 o'clock. So you checked your your email when you're wrapped up for the day. Um, It's only mad people that are, crazy mad people, customers, whatever, that are sending emails through the night. So why do you need to check it first thing in the morning? Because it's easy and it's lazy work. It's lazy work to come in and turn on your email and go, oh, I can't be stuffed doing the hard things right now. I'm going to procrastinate. So checking your email first thing is a form of procrastination. Let me react to what's there and kind of, you know, put out all the fires, but just waiting till 11 o'clock. And I don't, last yesterday, I didn't check my email till seven o'clock last night. You know, I didn't touch it all day. And so I got on with the things that I knew I needed to do. The email will sit there. If somebody really wants me, my phone's going to have 20 missed calls, you know? So, So I think we've got to get back to, We've got to get more disciplined in getting back to, um, you know, having people call us if they really need us right now. Email is, you know, it's like the old, it's an evolution of the old memo system where someone wrote a note and put it on the trolley, and the trolley guy delivered it to the inbox, and two days later the memo turned up, and we kind of automated that process. And so it, it is a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a um, very addictive, um, you know, activity that is non-productive. And so um, in terms of the morning ritual, the morning ritual is about setting yourself up for the day. It starts with eating amazing ingredients. What food can I eat this morning or not eat if you're an intermittent faster? Um, What can I consume or not consume that is going to have me thinking as smart as possible through the day today? What is it I can do this morning? Now, it might be journaling. It might be meditating. It might be a bunch of those things. But the outcome that we're looking for is how can I be as absolutely as smart as possible today and as as prepared and ready to go today as possible to get the best out of today? And that might start for me. My morning ritual starts the night before by trying to be in bed at 9.30.
1: And so with your book of 50 in hand. That's exactly right.
2: That's exactly, what, that's exactly what I do. After dinner, I sit down and I kind of look at my list and I go, what didn't I get to today? What do I need to make sure I remember? Uh, what do I need to get on with? Uh, it does. My book of 50 talks very closely to my diary or my, my Google calendar. And so my phone is constantly telling me what's next. So my Google calendar is planned out six months in advance. And there's little spots to slip things in. And I know that I can put things in, but really important things are in that Google Calendar and I live and die by it. And and it's in fact, you know, I nearly didn't turn up um, you know, to the, to this session, but I looked at my kid, I was like, oh my gosh, I've got 20 minutes until I need to talk to Bernadette. So um, you know, that's really important. And then you can kind of remember to do things and then, you know, you don't have disasters and you don't forget to do things. Um so I don't put the tasks in, but I put the big picture stuff in uh, to that diary. So I can kind of plan right. I call it the milk run. Can I be efficient with where I'm going, what I'm doing, and who I'm seeing? Um, and so I'm not backtracking. You know, I don't want to be on one one part of the world, you know, one week and a different part of the world the next week, and then I've got to go back to that other part of the world or try and do two things in in that one place, and that just applies everywhere.
1: And in terms of when you look at the Book of 50, you might have really big things on there, you know, like buy your boat or restore yeah, your heritage things, yep. boat, you know. Yep, or. Yep, yep, um yep. But you've got little things like, you know, fix the light bulb. So just in terms of the the temptation is to look at the big things, the hard things and go, you know what, I'm going to pass on that. What's your motivational technique for looking at those difficult things that you know are going to build the business and remove yourself from the day to day? How do you connect up with your motivation so that they do become the things that you do? Look, I've never I, I haven't always
2: been amazing at it, but I'll I'll try to make sure that, that they become the beacon if you like. Um, to make sure i'm kind of you know heading in that direction and i'm i'm you know i i believe in this principle but when it comes out of my mouth it sounds really la la but i believe in manifestation and if you write it down in your book and you're telling the universe with your hand and a pen on paper that actually i'm headed in that direction and you know you know people get really frustrated oh i didn't achieve my goals it's like well yet you know, it's not, it's not, you didn't achieve your goal. You just didn't, don't give up on it. It's just, you didn't get there yet because you t- you kind of didn't, you know, t- how much did you think you'd, you know, you would achieve? Um, someone asked me yesterday, how much did you think you would achieve today? And I was like, know oh, in my head, I was like heaps more than what we did. But I said, you know, that no, I think we, you know, I think what we've achieved is realistic. Like I was exhausted. Um. We were doing some fencing on our farm yesterday. and And, you know, the guy that was working with me said, how far do you think we'd get today? And I was like, much further than these in my head, but I didn't stop all day and I was exhausted. So I couldn't have done any more. And I think that our heads think we can do a lot more. But if you write those things down and and for anyone following along the conversation right now, the book of 50 is a to-do list. It just happens to be in an exercise book and it's got lots of things in it. It's not just kind of a legal notepad. I I buy these beautiful notebooks that have got blank line pages and I write to-do lists and I just keep adding to the right-hand side of the book. Um, you know, I like writing on the right-hand side of the page. I don't like writing on the back of the paper that I've written on before. Um, and, and so, you know, it gives me a spare page to doodle and scribble, but I've got these to-do lists on the right-hand side of the page. When you open up, I, when you open up, I'm right-handed. If you were left-handed, you could do it on the left-hand side. Um, and so, you know, I'll write something really big, like, you know, um, restore a 1966 heritage 65 foot, um, you know, motor yacht, um, and that, you, you know, you chip away at that every single day for four years. Um, and so I break down the little things. You you can, there'll be lots of people on social media say that that can be too overwhelming for you. It's like, well, you know, if you want to change the world, you got to think big. And yes, it might be overwhelming from time to time, but if you've got that beacon ahead, then you can keep coming back to it and go, actually, yes, that's still on my wish list.
1: And one of the things, Kirby, I know that you do and you really advocate for is selling. And I think this is a real um, tripping point for a lot of copywriters and, and self-employed people, and, and maybe even creative people in particular, who go, oh, it's it's daunting. I don't want to push myself. I find it's a bit slimy. Um, but you're going, you got to sell, right? It's the lifeblood of a business. So what are some of your strategies for selling? Because I know you've got some beautiful scripts and things like that in terms of how you get through those conversations.
2: Let's start with you know, I don't think I'm a salesperson. I think it's really greasy and slimy and, you know, I don't like doing it. It's really cringy and I'm not a salesperson. You're selling me on the fact that you don't like selling. So you're already a salesperson. So you might as well have a positive mindset about it because people have got your money and you need to go and get that money off them. And so, you know, that's the starting point is understanding that, you know, you you need money to pay your mortgage, your rent, feed your kids, buy your groceries, go on holidays, do all those sorts of things. And you can tell yourself till you're blue in the face that you're not a salesperson, but all you're doing is selling to yourself that you're not a salesperson. So you might as well say, actually, what? let's flip it on its head. What if I was the best salesperson on the planet and I could sell anything to anybody? Then I would be making an ethical choice to only sell to people that need the things that I sell. And so sales, highly ethical and high-performance salespeople only sell... To people that need the things they sell, why is that? Because it's really easy to sell to someone who needs something. If you, if someone's looking for a glass of milk, it's really easy to sell them a glass of milk because they're like, I'm in the market for a glass of milk. Hey, that just so happens I sell milk. And if if I had the glass of milk to sell and I went to you and you said, actually, no, I drink soy or I drink almond milk. It's like, well, I'm, I'm going to work till I'm blue in the face telling you all the benefits of drinking a glass of milk when in actual, actual fact you're not in the market for it. So the highest performing salespeople, the people that are, are amazing at it, they they move really quickly through their pipeline, finding the people that are tire kicking or their looky lose or their mistakes, and they just go for the you know the the what I call buyers in power, which is maybe someone who's almost in the market but not quite yet, and 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 buyers that are that are hot buyers if you like, you know it's a it's a hot lead because they like need it right now. And so then it's really about ensuring that you know that the product or service that you sell is absolutely going to give the amazing benefit to the customer that the customer is looking for. And I specifically didn't say features, features versus benefits because in the wise words of Steve Jobs, he talks about the fact what amazing benefit can we give to our customer? And so the customer has got their hard-earned money and they're trying to hand over that hard-earned money to you know, to to get the benefit they're looking for. You know, I want to feel amazing as I drive to work in my new car or I want to look great in my new outfit. It's not, oh, yeah, it's cotton and it's got this, you know, stitching and it's got this pattern on it. It's about I want to feel amazing and I want to look professional, you know, or it's, you know, I, I want to eat really well. We're, my wife and I are trying light and easy at the moment. Um, And so just as something kind of interesting to go, okay, well, hang on a minute. I don't know. I just had this epiphany. I was like, if we did light and easy, then someone would kind of count the calories for us and just give us the stuff. We don't need to go to the supermarket. So we get like three hours a week back at an hourly rate. You go, hang on a minute. Actually it's, I'm like crazy. All of a sudden this penny drop is like light and easy is really cheap. You don't have to work out the menu. You get time back. You don't have to go to the supermarket. They give you the calories that you need. So you're not putting too much in your mouth. So you actually, you end up looking amazing. And I'm like, holy crap, why was I so against this in the past? And so, you know, what I have noticed is the romance of making dinner and all that kind of stuff has gone, but it's given us back time to focus on our son and homework and have quality family time. So, you know, that's an amazing benefit. Amazing benefit, I'm going to give you back time. I'm going to, you know, help you feel and look amazing because you're not going to put too many calories in your mouth and, um, and you don't need to make decisions about, you know, finding all the ingredients, you just pick what you want out of this great food that we're going to send you.
1: I think that often flags into the copywriting conversation because people think, oh, you know, what do you do? Well, I write email campaigns or I write blogs. That's not really what the clients are looking for. That is a means to an end. It's like, well, That's an right. email campaign gets you two more leads, which gets mm-hmm. you more customers. So you can pick and choose who you work with and work less. So I think from a copywriting perspective, what I try and say to my students is don't focus on the the elements of what you make because they are actually not that relevant uh, to that to that person. It's 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 about the bigger picture. So when you think about the Facebook ad that you write and that leads to a landing page and that leads to an ebook and that leads to you know the website yes. and that leads to the blog. So you know when you think about the entire journey of a customer, all those items need to be written, but all you're saying is, well, I can you know get get you a lead or I can get you more customers. So it's kind of what's what are we doing? How are we helping, you know rather than focusing on the things that we um we write?
2: Yeah, and the beautiful words of Simon Sinek. People don't buy what you do; they buy why you do it. And so, if you're talking to customers, and and I'll kind of I'll give uh, everyone a, a kind of mechanical approach to sales in a second. But if you start with why, which is when you're when you're going to sell, here comes some script. So, press pause and record. You know, press pause, record. Uh, re, you know, rewind, play as much as you want on this next little thing I've got. Which is if you start with why. So, if you open up every conversation, sales conversation, you know, networking conversation with, I'm really passionate about using crafted beautiful messages and words to help people understand something, you know, and, and maybe that's the email campaign or the Facebook ad or whatever that might be. And I have a lot of fun with different platforms, you know, placing those messages uh, in a place that people can easily consume them and access them. And, you know, sometimes that's on Facebook and sometimes that's on email campaigns and and we help organizations to become more financially healthy by, writing beautiful copy. And then what do we do? Well we set up email campaigns and we build landing pages and we you know craft long form web pages. And and that's what we do and we explore that and we A B test that to work out what works and brings the best quality customers possible into the organization so that it's easy for the organization to service those customers. And so that's the kind of why, how and what, if you like of the process. So then every sale has an open and a close Every sale, we start with massive information gathering, understanding and as uh, asking hundreds and hundreds of questions of your client or your customer or your prospect as to what it is that they want, what are some of the issues they've got, what are the things they're looking for, so that you can be absolutely confident that when you present and always present after you've done your massive information gathering, you can present your product or service because you're absolutely confident that it meets the needs and their benefit that they're looking for and so the sale is open which is this person yeah there's some potential there i'm pretty confident i can help them massive information gathering is step two then only when you've done your massive information gathering do you go to presenting don't never never turn up to a sales meeting with a customer and the customer says tell us about yourself you say well look in order for me to tell me tell you about myself, I want to make sure I'm telling you the right things in the right order. I need to ask you a bunch of questions. And so your sales meeting, if you like, starts with this massive information gathering, asking as many questions as you possible uh, you know why, how, what when, where? And then we go to presentation. When we're presenting, we're saying, so I understand that you need this and I understand that this is a problem and I understand that you tried this and I understand that you did this and I understand that you want this and I understand that you're looking for this and I understand this is the time frame, and I understand this is, and because you've asked all those questions, then you can say, and I believe that we can do this, 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 this and this for you and meet those needs. And then closing, if there's any objections from the customer, you're really just saying, have you got enough information to make a decision? And and then they're going to come up with what's called objections, and then you can if there are objections, then that is a signal to kind of go back to massive information gathering, because they haven't, you haven't heard exactly what they're looking for, or you've proposed things that maybe they didn't talk about. So you need to do more massive information gathering, and then handle those objections, and then get it closed. Now you think that's a lot of time. That's exactly right. It's a lot of time. That's why it's unethical to sell to somebody. Right at the very beginning, you say, look, you know, with your first few questions, you go, look, I don't think I can help you, instead of ploughing through and, you know, selling them a ski jacket when they're going to Hawaii for summer. But you've
1: just been to Hawaii, I know.
2: Absolutely, <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> yep. So let's let's drill down a bit because I know you're really, really good at this. And what let's say some of the objections are money. Okay, people say, I don't have the budget. What do you say? Because I know you're really good at this. Yeah, look, if someone says, look, I don't have the budget for that,
2: you say, okay, well, let's talk about, you know, is it a question of affordability or you don't see the value? And they say, I I simply can't afford it. You say, okay, well, let's, you know, have you got any ability to help them with a different financial structure? So you say, look, you know, we can do this massive project for all of this money or could we spread it out? They say, well, I need all of the leads right now. You say, well, you're going to need to spend the money. So, you know, it comes down to like, you know, they they still, you know, do they have the need? Because people will always find the money. Like you will always find the money to go to the chemist and buy Panadol when you've got a headache. You know, if your car's broken down on the side of the road, you'll always find the money to get the car fixed or the tyres. So it does come down to, you know, needs and wants. Um, And, you know, I would say if someone says, I don't have the budget for that, you say, well, why'd you call me? You know, because I'm here to sell to you. You asked me to come out here. You're here to buy from me. Why am I here? Like, you know, what for? And you can you can be that blunt. Like if somebody's giving you that I don't have the budget for that, then, you know, maybe you're repositioning your product or service. Maybe you kind of overcooked it uh, in terms of like proposing too much. Um, but but it, it don't see that as a signal to erode your profit margin. It's not that they're looking for a discount. Uh, you say, okay, well, what would you like me to take out? of my service? What is it about my, what parts of my service did I include that we could possibly take out so that, you know, the, the bill could be a little bit less. So this is all objections handling. Um, and I'm kind of just brainstorming right now. You know, some of the things I've been through, you know, to, to handle those things. But if they say, you know, I just don't have the budget for that, you know, they, they're asking for more leads and you're saying, well, we can do some Facebook ads and an email campaign and bring, build some long form landing pages and that feeds into your website. And they're like, I don't have the budget for that. So, okay, well, um, is that a question of affordability or you don't see the value because this is what I can guarantee it will deliver. And, and you want to be able to say, this is what I guarantee it can deliver because you asked them all of those questions in the beginning, you're absolutely ironclad confident given the outcome they're looking for. If you're not because you're learning or you're getting started then scale it back and say, okay, well, how about instead of, you know, $5,000 a month, we go we come back to 500 bucks a month. Ask yourself the question, can I, you know, can I service and deliver what they're looking, some of what they're looking for, not all of it, uh, at that point whilst maintaining your margins.
1: Awesome. Because I know that sales is is a real issue for a lot of people. and Absolutely. Yeah. And in terms of the the things that people look for when they're buying them, so it's just taking a different tack now, but you sold your business after 16 years for a, a big sum, Um what kind of metrics should a copywriter, for example, be looking to pay attention to in the early stages to see if they're on track so that in five years' time those metrics have taken care of themselves? What kind of ratios are we looking at here?
2: Um, the first one for copywriters and the people who are listening is how many dollars of work did, what did your business deliver where you didn't do the work? So you want to try to, you know, you are starting to build a business if you're not the one doing the invoicing, you know, you're not doing the hours if you like. So you're empowering other people around you to kind of make mistakes under your supervision, but you're not billable if you like. And the massive turning point for me was in 2008 when uh, my wife said, Hey, I'm going to South America. And for three months, um, you know, come, don't come, I don't care. I'm like, hang on a minute, <laughs> I'm coming, you know? And so I had to automate as much of my business or delegate is the right word, delegate as much of my business as possible. And I said, that's it. I'm not billing for my time anymore, ever again. And so it was in it was kind of in 2008 when I did that. And, and, and that was the, really the tipping point where every single other person did the kind of billable work. And I was just coaching and mentoring like master and apprentice. So I was the master craftsman um, but not charging for my time. And, and so that, you know, I, I then watched all of my apprentices and I let them make little mistakes because that's how they learn. When there was really big mistakes, I was kind of hovering them, helicopter parent around them, if you like. Um, and you have to be a helicopter parent so that they don't, you know, crash your company, if you like, um, and, and do massive financial disasters. But, but that's really the mentoring role. So, as you're building your organization. So, I think the second thing is how many hours of mentoring and, you know, apprentice training are you doing per week? The first one is how many dollars of revenue are you doing per week per month? That's someone else, not you. Now, that could be a contractor, a freelance person, someone on Fiverr, you know, any of that kind of stuff. And then the next one is how many hours per week are you doing of, of develop training and development with your team? That are starting to be built around you even yourself you should always be tracking how many hours per week of professional development or reading you're doing yourself and i mean weekly it's not something that you kind of read a book monthly um you know we're in the business of books and and i think they're super valuable and they have huge amounts of value um for the for the price you pay off the shelf um so you should be reading every week uh, daily is my recommendation but let's go with weekly so people that are reading once a year feel guilty um you know <laughs> Um, and so then you're starting to look at, um, you know, uh, dollars per month of per customer. Uh, and that assumes that you've got uh, customers that you're giving monthly service to uh, monthly or bi-monthly or quarterly service to. And so, or, you know, annually if you like, but you really want to have customers where you're, you're, you know, providing goods and services to them on a, on a, at minimum quarterly to six monthly basis, but ideally less than quarterly. And that is called recurring revenue. Um, And then you ideally want to try and get that locked up into some kind of contract that might be 24 months, if you like. Um, Those are kind of the early metrics uh, that we're looking at. Um, And then you can start looking at the profitability of that. So somebody who's looking down the track to buy a business, what are they looking for? They're looking for future profit. So they've got a chunk of cash, and they want to put it somewhere better than in a bank. And so but they don't they're not looking for a job. They've got a chunk of cash they're not like they can go and get a job and keep earning more cash. They're looking to put their cash somewhere and have that, you know, invest in that thing and maybe they've got other management structures and operators that can come in and kind of you know help the business along a bit in your absence. Um but that's ultimately what buyers are looking for, future profit.
1: And let's talk about multiples because I know that's you know, obviously it's a critical part, but a lot of people aren't aware that different kinds of businesses, different categories, all have different multiples. So you've got, you know, food and beverage, you've got IT, you've got agriculture, you've got professional services, all are pegged at different multiples. So I think that's an important point to make because if people don't know that, they don't know how these these numbers are calculated. So can you just talk us through either how your business was, you know, valued or how a copywriting business might be valued?
2: Yeah, so look, um your profit and loss statement is where it all starts. So the profit and loss is the is the, the bottom line of a of a profit and loss statement, which your bookkeeping system will be able to produce that report. Uh, the bottom line, which is net profit, the very bottom line is literally when we say bottom line, it's literally the bottom line of the report. Uh, it's called net profit. And so your business will be measured, um, you know, that's that's the profit and did you make that profit happen or did, or did your team make the profit happen in your absence? Uh, a business that makes profit in the absence of the owner is more valuable than a business that makes profit in the presence of the owner. So let's start with that. And then a business that makes profit in the absence of an owner with customers that come back on a regular basis uh, in place of, customers that maybe only buy once in their whole life uh, are more valuable. So let me give you an example. Uh, how many times in your life would you build a house? Maybe once. And so construction companies have low valuations uh, because most people only buy them once in their lifetime. And so you can't keep extracting value out of the same group of customers. You've got to go find more customers. And so there, you know, there's other issues with the construction industry. Let's put that aside and let's just talk about you might only ever build a brand new house once and it won't be everybody. How many of us, quick show of hands, have a toothbrush? And how many times a year do we buy a toothbrush? If it was my son, he'd buy a toothbrush every two years. But my wife buys the two toothbrushes on a quarterly basis. So we're buying toothbrushes on a quarterly basis That's and we've all got one and we all need another one and another one and another one. And so um, if you could have a subscription business where customers sign up and their toothbrush just turns up every 12 weeks, whether they like it or not, they just like Netflix or Spotify. It's just deducted from their credit card and you sign up for a 36 month plan or your who gives, gives a crap toilet paper. Um, that's, that's getting popular. Um, those businesses operate in the absence. Well, I think most of them in the absence of the owner with customers that buy on a regular basis and they've just got to keep building their customer base and hanging are hanging it. So it's kind of, Project versus recurring business. Now, then there's some other things like risk, uh, how how mobile are the customers in the marketplace? So something like a uh, an accountancy practice uh, might get valued at anywhere from one to three times. So it would be either $1 from $1 to $3 times every dollar on the bottom line. So if that business made $100,000, Profit in a year, it would be worth anywhere from a hundred to three hundred thousand dollars. A business uh, that makes, you know, a million dollars profit, would be worth anywhere from one million to three million dollars. It it usually comes back to a multiple, and it comes back to an investor has a chunk of change and they want to invest it somewhere that's better than in the bank. That's what it comes down to. So we can kind of get all caught up in multiples and what businesses are worth, but. And then how much risk is it to that investor? And and the investor might have other infrastructure. in, in In the example of the people that bought my business, they had other infrastructure that they could add. And so they got some economies of cost reduction. So they took some costs out of the business. They already had an office, for example. So they deleted our rent from our office from the equation and our people just integrated into their existing office. In fact, everyone was working from home. Uh, they had other IT infrastructure and IT services. So they were able to kind of, you know, just cancel all of the just subscriptions for some of the software we had, cancel the rent. Um, they had, you know, managing directors, like senior leaders that are very good and very talented at running the business. And so they were able to continue to mentor and, and, and train my kind of mid-level managers. And so they took my whole team and brought them across into their business and added value to the top and from the sides and they got the benefit of all of the customers. So they got. They also said, "Well, we've got products that we know that your customers are buying from other people. We would like your customers to buy those products from us." And so they've got the cross sell. And so that adds if you if if the person that you would sell your business to gets value out of your customer base, that'll add another multiple. So you might go from you know, from three, a multiple of $3 for every dollar of profit to four or five or six. And in our instance, we were looking at multiples up around the 10 mark because they had customers that they could, you know, they had products and services they could sell to our customers. They had other other customers already that they could sell our products and services to. They had a business that was operating fairly independently of the owner, which was me. Um, They, we had customers, we had average customer retention of 7.4 years. So we would do work for our customers every three months for an average of 7.4 years. And it was only 7.4 years because we just hadn't been around long enough for the average to be longer. Um, And so every year that average is growing. And they're like, we had really sticky customers and we had our margins right. We had good training programs and good induction programs and all of that just ran you know, because I'd built it, you know, every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday with my book of 50, doing a bit of sales, doing a bit of marketing, doing a bit of operations. I just built it that way. Um, and, and, and so we were able to, um, you know, kind of mechanically work those things. So I hope this is helpful for anyone listening that really start thinking about this because that is that proprietary limited business has got value. It's a, it's a share. You can sell those shares or sell that business. So, if you can continue to build your customer base, continue to keep your customer base, just adding more customers, continue to train your team and empower your team and, and you know, be a great leader that people bang on the door to work for, then that thing will have some value down the track.
1: Beautiful. And we, I've got one more question because this is so related to... What copywriters do and it's more about content and I know you are a master of content and in our last <laughs> podcast we talked about how to make you know thousands of pieces of content quickly but there was a word there was a phrase that you, you um, use for yourself which was do more right whenever yeah. you think things aren't working just do more and that was around content and can I, can you just talk us through that that moment where you started to do more and what you actually did because I think that mentality that you have too, which is, it's not up to me to de- to decide what my content's like. I, I'm not judging the content. That's for the customer to do. And I think that takes away a, a little bit of the fear of putting content out there. So maybe just in our last few minutes, Kobe, you can just talk through about that. Do more, do more of what? And how can yeah. we get over that that burden of thinking it's got to be brilliant every single time?
2: Yeah, I, I I forget how the exact saying going it goes, but it's like perfectionism is the is the antithesis of success, and you know people are like oh, you know I, I I want to spend more time making my content perfect before I put it out. Um, well, it's like you're not the, actually the judge of quality. Your customers the judge of quality. Your customer will tell you what they like and what they don't like, and often what you like and what your customer likes is not always the same. Um, and in fact. Um, that's the, the demise of most businesses is when the business owner is saying, you know, this is, this is what it is. And the customer is saying, no, I want that. And even I fall into that trap. You know, we wanted to do – I wanted to do some crazy stuff with the business and the customer's like, no, nah, we don't value that, you know. And I've been saying, is it a question of affordability or you don't see the value? Like, we don't see the value. We're not paying for that. And so um, – and they didn't buy things. You know, I came up with things that I thought were amazing and they didn't buy them. So when it comes to putting out content and, and you know, um, social media – Um, you know, kind of is, you know, it's kind of, it's there, you know, and we can't get away from it. Let's start with a couple of things. The first thing is social media is just a different, unique place on the internet where you can put something. It's just that, you know, Facebook posts are still just web pages. They've got a unique URL, um, you know, Twitter tweets, or now it's X tweets or whatever he changed his name to last week. Uh, You know, Instagram's got, you know, threads, that you can still share that link, so it is just micro pages. Now, what you're, what we were just talking about is, is this concept of quality. Don't procrastinate. Just put it out there and let your audience, let the market, let your customers decide if it's any good. And the more you put out, two things happen. One is they get to see more and choose uh, what they like and what they don't like, and you'll see something go viral, which means it was viral is you know, synonymous with the word quality, essentially, um, because it's entertaining, educational, inspirational, for example. Um, and stuff that doesn't work, you've got to keep practicing. And, and we did put out a lot of content. In 2020, we put out 100 posts an hour for a whole year. We got to 36,000 social media posts in 12 months. In There's 365 days in the year. And if you did one post a day, Well, let's, no, there's 52 weeks in the year. If you did one post a week, you would do 52 posts in the year. We had that done by 9.30 on day one. So I'm a year ahead of you in half an hour on my very first day of doing 50 posts, you know, 100 posts an hour. I'm at 50 posts in the first 30 minutes. And so what happened to me by the time it was 10 o'clock was I was two years ahead of you. And by the end of the day, you know, I was however many years ahead of you. And what am I saying? I was practicing. And we were practicing. We were putting out lots and we were getting more efficient. And we worked out a way to produce lots of content in a great way and, a, and an easy way, in a simple way. And then we were able to A-B test and see what's working and what wasn't working. And we could see the nuances of the algorithm. And so you're going to try, you know, putting out one post a week for like six weeks and you're going to realize they're not working and then you're not going to realize that actually the algorithm's penalizing you, for example. You can't see any of that. You're just like, no one sees it. No one likes it it's like well actually you know um, linkedin is the best example that i can give right now we we were putting out posts on linkedin and we we were thinking you know we were creating these great pdfs and we were posting them on linkedin and we were like getting two likes and three views and then i was i would just write something on linkedin you know just text with my thumbs on my iphone and it was a 1300 character text post and we'll get 6000 views and then we figured that actually People didn't have the data to download the LinkedIn post while they're catching the bus to work because they didn't want to use their mobile data. LinkedIn said, everybody do video. And no one watched videos on LinkedIn because they were looking at LinkedIn while they went on the bus or the train to work. And they're like, I don't want to consume that rubbish content. I'm going to watch the fun stuff on Facebook or Instagram while I'm traveling. And then I'll do the LinkedIn stuff while I'm on Wi-Fi. And then they don't have time to watch the videos or it's on silent. And so they need to read subtitles there's all that kind of stuff. And then then LinkedIn came out with polls and the polls exploded because LinkedIn wanted everyone to use a new feature. And so so from a social media perspective, you know, what are my top tips? One, the audience is the best judge of quality. So just do lots. Two, use the newest feature. If you're going to do anything on social media and you're not going to do very much, but you're going to do a little bit, just do whatever the new feature is. Like for example, Instagram reels or or TikTok just little short TikTok videos. You don't need to do dancing and crazy stuff like that. Just talk about whatever you talk about uh, and do it on the platform that's the newest, that's got the most organic reach. So just pick the kind of new feature if you like. Threads, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's putting a lot of money behind Threads, which is the spin-off of Instagram. Uh, jump on that platform. You know, I picked up uh, something like 10,000 followers in three days on Threads, you know. Um, so, uh, and I think you know, the final point is do more. You can never do too much. And if you're going to be a great business that's super successful, well, how much content does a great business that's super successful do? Lots. So you got to do lots.
1: That's a great way to finish, Kofi. Thank you so much for your time and good luck with the book. It was an absolute joy to work with you on it. Thank you so much. And it is amazing. Um, please listen
2: to Bernadette. She's incredible. Consume all of her content, do all of her courses. They're absolutely incredible.
1: Don't you just love Kobe's positivity and mindset? Anything is possible. Nothing's a problem. He started from scratch and is now living the dream. Maybe you can too. If you'd like to learn how to write more content more quickly and build those retainers, check out our email marketing and copywriting course. You'll learn how to write email sequences, build a digital marketing campaign, write confidently for e-commerce, professional services, B2B, B2C, and much more. You can find out more at writercenter.com.au forward slash email or copyschool.com. And in closing, a philosophical question for you. Why is abbreviated such a long word? And a quote to finish off with. You may not write well every day, but you can always edit a bad page. You can't edit a blank page. Very true. Well, that's it from me. All the best and bye-bye.
0: This podcast was brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Do you want to become a confident, highly paid email strategist and email copywriter? Take a look at our course, Email Marketing and Copywriting. Created by Bernadette Schwert, this seven-week online course will teach you how to create and write effective email marketing campaigns that get results. Find out more at writercentercomau slash email marketing. And thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Copywriter. You'll find the show notes at so you want to be a Copywriter.com.au.